BSD Now, episode 486, EuroBSDCon interviews. Recorded on the 15th of December 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you would like to support the show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your only host for this episode, Benedikt Reuschling, today, because, well, it's a bit of a special episode this time, not only because it's our Christmas episode, but we somehow managed to make the 486 episode, 486, this special, well, occasion here, and we thought it would be nice to give ourselves a little bit of off time, but our audience also something special for the holiday season. So Tom and I did some interviews at EuroBSDCon back in September in Vienna, and we were able to grab a couple of developers in front of a microphone without too much uh, physical resistance. And we were uh, recording short interviews with them, 20 minutes roughly. And this is the first part of these two. So we have three people, but the third person will be in another episode. So we have to be a bit... Uh, patient for that, but this one will feature two people, and the first one is Brooks Davis, longtime developer of FreeBSD, and also Olivier Cochard-Labbé, who is also quite active in FreeBSD for a number of years now, and each of them will introduce themselves, and so you get to know them a little bit better and what they are working on. But before we do that, there is also something we need to get uh, into your ears or before the year ends so that it's not forgotten, uh, because before the year ends, all the foundations of BSD, your, the, um, for example, FreeBSD Foundation, the NetBSD Foundation, or the OpenBSD Foundation, they need your donations before the year ends, because it makes a lot of difference for them, and they can put the money to good use to make the project uh, more sustainable, right, and support various efforts that they are doing keep the project alive and going. And as a representative for this one, we have a short article before the interviews begin. This one is about the OpenBSD Foundation and Undeadly Org tells us about help the OpenBSD Foundation reach its 2022 fundraising goal. And Peter Henstein wrote this little article here and this goes like the following. The OpenBSD Foundation, which is central to funding the OpenBSD project, needs your help to reach its 2022 fundraising goal of 300000 Dollar. I'm fairly sure these are Canadian dollars, not US dollars, because that's a Canadian foundation. But I might be wrong. It's not uh, further specified here, but I'm fairly sure it's Canadian dollars. Nevertheless, at the end of uh, at the time of writing, the amount raised in 2022 stands at a little over 50% of the stated goal, and the foundation needs your help to sustain the project, which is OpenBSD. Everyone knows about who <laughs> listens to this podcast on a regular basis and uh, please head over to the foundation's donation page that's linked from our show notes as well and make sure you drag your employer over there too yeah why not and uh, with about 30 days left by the time this article appears a little shorter when you hear this episode um, but uh, there's still time to donate since it's all online and you don't have to mail uh, money in an envelope or some kind of <laughs> check or something, even though that is also possible. So uh, definitely help them out and also consider donating to your other favorite BSD project or to other foundations that you find uh, important to support with your money. 
and that is always appreciated keeping open source supported in this way as well okay so let's start with our first interview brooks davis and there will be a little bit of an introduction at the beginning so i'll shut up now and wish you a inter interesting interview hello we're at eurobeasticon in vienna and we were able to drag a couple people from their busy talk schedules away to have an interview with us so yeah, so we're here today with uh, Brooks Davis. Um, Brooks has been on the show before, uh, but maybe you want to give people a refresher about how you got started with BSD and using Unix. Uh, yeah, so like I started using uh, FreeBSD in high school in the early 90s. Um, we had uh, David Greenman, I uh, was friends with uh, one of the instructors at school, and he brought us a floppy-based router um, to uh, running like FreeBSD 1.0 maybe um, to, to hook us up to the internet at some really pathetic speed, um, but it was like internet, so that was really cool. And uh, then I went off to college. He, he gave me some CDs of 1.0 um, when I was going and I installed it and then like I needed some software on the Solaris system. So I kept complaining about not having enough space. So they hired me to run <laughs> to help admin the Solaris system. And I was a Solaris admin for like five years. Ooh, <laughs> and, wow. uh, and then came back to FreeBSD, uh, I guess I was like four years, but came back to FreeBSD uh, after I graduated. I tried to like get Red Hat up and running. Like I bought media okay. and everything. Didn't work. Went back to FreeBSD. I was like, oh, I could do the PHP or the, yeah, the PPP router thing. And it just worked. So I was uh, doing that. And then it turned into being Part of my day job as well once i uh, got hired after college um, we ran a test lab and did a bunch of dummy net stuff oh wow that's really cool yeah. really? and then from there sort of moved on i uh, built a freebsd cluster um, i've talked about it in various shows and given talks about it in the past um, and then about 10 years ago i was kind of uh, getting burned out at my last job and was looking around and uh, um, the group at uh, University of Cambridge and SRI was hiring uh, for people to work on the Cherry project. Oh, okay. So maybe that's quite a good segue. Maybe you could explain what Cherry is and, and what the new stuff you have with Morello is. Yeah. So Cherry uh, Cherry adds a new hardware type, um, a capability. Capability um, references allows you to reference a specific bounded region of memory, and uh, your capabilities in Cherry are designed to be used as replacements for pointers. Um, so if you compile in a mode where all pointers are capabilities. Uh, we defeat virtually all spatial memory safety bugs. And we also have the ability uh, with some, uh, the fact that our pointers are unforgeable and therefore detectable at runtime, we can uh, defeat most temporal safety bugs as well. So we have a real uh, possibility of de defeating, I don't know, 70% or so of typical vulnerabilities that people um, issue patches for. Could you could you maybe give an example of what these look like for people that aren't super into low-level security stuff? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a typical, like, classic buffer overflow bug would be um, if you have a string that's allocated and you allocate 80 characters for it, and then you read 100 characters, and you write past the end and you write into something else. Um, sort of the, the most classic version would be you would write over the pointer that you would return to when you return from that function um, and can jump back. Cherry defeats that actually in two ways. Um, one, because it puts bounds on, the, uh, on that allocated space, um, you can't write off the end. But if your compiler or runtime had messed up and did not done that or done that wrong, 
Um, there's an additional factor, that, which is that our capabilities can't be forged and they're protected by a tag in memory. So that, they, that tag is only preserved if you use special instructions to write capabilities. If you write string data, um, if you write just a sequence of bytes, the tag is cleared and therefore you can't use it to access memory anymore. Okay, so it's architectural protection for these vulnerabilities. Yeah, it provide, provides architectural protection. Um, it, it, one of the ways we like to look at it um, is an idea we call the principle of intentional use. Um, the idea that you can, you can actually express, the, the programmers expressed a clear intention when they allocated some space for something. They meant that to be an object and they meant you to be, have a pointer that that object can only access that object, not some other random things. Um, we continue to express that intent down into the hardware uh, rather than um, r rather than just throwing that away and just treating it as a number in a giant um, set of memory. Okay, that's really cool. And and so Morello is the latest development in, in Cherry. Um, could you explain what Morello is? Yeah, so Morello is a is a project um, funded in part by uh, the UK UKRI. Um, it's uh, funded funded through a program called Digital Security by Design in the UK, um, and they are paying part of the cost, and ARM is paying part of the cost uh, to have developed a full-scale chip. So they've taken um, the core design uh, called called the N1 design um, that's used in, for instance, uh, Amazon's Graviton uh, CPUs, and they've taken that and they've added Cherry to that. So they really, the, the goal here is, well, there are many goals of the program, um, but they include verifying that they can really make a credible implementation of Cherry in a real microarchitecture as opposed to the sort of RISC-V and MIPS soft cores that we've previously done, which are really quite small, um, but also to provide a performant environment for people to test software ideas. We're trying to get to the point that both the hardware people and the software people agree that this is going to work um, so that we can all commit. <laughs> um, you know, we, we're here, we're doing, a, we're doing a prototype, and this is a fairly expensive prototype. It's over 100,000, yeah. 100, or sorry, over 100 million pounds um, to fabricate a chip um, and do, do this whole design to take it to tape out. So it's a really big deal. Um, and yet, so, so like, there's a general understanding that, you know, this seems like a really good idea, but like, we've got to really have commitment um, because there is, we're trying to break this um, deadlock where um, software people don't want to program to hardware that doesn't exist. And hardware people don't really like building hardware that software people end up not using. That's really annoying. Sure. You know, you suffer through all the deadlines and whatnot. At the end, you have a slower chip that uses more power. So that's sad. So we, we want to not have that happen. So you say that um, Morello was retrofitted on top of the N1. Was this part of the design process of N1 from quite early on? Um, no, this was, they, they, they took the, the N1 design and then they modified it um, to add capabilities. So it's some new instructions, some new um, some changes to the memory controller so that all accesses via capabilities. Um, and then the, the Merlo design also, there's some cases where we're not sure what the right thing to do was. So, the, <laughs> so uh, ARM did both to let us experiment. Oh, that's um, pretty cool. Which has you know, pluses and minuses in terms of overall system performance, but it really lets us um, try multiple options so we can figure out which one 
should belong in some future uh, production architecture. What's the, um, the overhead for <clears throat> having the uh, capability support compared to an M1 core? Um, it's a bit hard to talk about, um, in part because uh, this project was done very quickly. So we went from <laughs> architecture to tape out at a year wow. um, instead of two, two and a half years. So not everything is perhaps as optimized as it could have been um, if it were aiming for a full production architecture. But sort of typical overheads you'll see in normal software are like on the order of two, three percent. Yeah, some benchmarks are considerably higher. Things that are just that are nothing but pointer chasing. Um, you start to suffer from things like the fact that since pointers are bigger, you use more cache, and if you didn't grow the cache, then you don't you don't uh, recover that performance. But that does sound like less overhead than the mitigations for um, Spectre and Meltdown, though. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, we're not we're not on the order of one hundred percent. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> and FreeBSD was the first operating system that was developed for or on Morello. Um, yeah, so we so we started out um, a decade ago doing a MIPS design based design. It was the it was the sixty four bit sort of openish architecture um, that was available at the time. ARM sixty four wasn't announced yet. Um, you know, and power was didn't seem like an obvious place to start. Uh, from an IP perspective. So we started on MIPS um, and we did our initial design there. We got FreeBSD up and running on that platform and CherryBSD. Uh, and then after, I guess, five years or so, we got uh, some additional funding to do a RISC-V port. Um, but we'd already started talking to ARM at that point. So that was also going on behind the scenes. Um, so we were doing RISC-V and ARM at the same time. Okay, wow, that's quite a workload for a lab to be putting out. Yeah. yeah, we have a pretty good sized team. Our weekly meetings usually have 20, 25 people in them. Um, we have a rotation of PhD researchers and uh, okay. interns and whatnot going through. Very nice. And you also gave, switching gears a little bit here, a talk at the conference here about system calls. I remember that it was very interested uh, or interesting. And I also remember your previous talks about what's involved in a simple Hello World program. So you're always giving talks like, like this, but what was this syscall specific one without repeating too much? Um, yeah, so I, I, the talk that I gave at this conference, I titled, uh, So You Want to Add a System Call. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the focus of the talk was on the mechanisms within FreeBSD that you use to declare a system call signature and uh, generate header files and whatnot. Um, so that you know which uh, so which functions you need to implement. Um, and then with a focus there on how the compatibility layer works. So how 32-bit um, compatibility works on a 64-bit system. Um, and also in the case of CherryBSD, how um, our FreeBSD 64 compatibility layer works um, to support uh, conventional 64-bit binaries on CherryBSD. And a lot of this work just came out of the fact that I had noticed that even many of our most senior developers, really experienced people, um, would make mistakes in deciding when in, in whether or not they needed to implement a compatibility layer. And so I felt like I should just write it all down um, and get it at least get it into a talk. Um, we have a wiki page and it describes some of it, but uh, thought I would put it into a talk and talk a little bit about the automation I've done at this point. Um, as a result of adding two different ABIs to CherryBSD, um, I've automated pretty much everything 
in the creation of the compatibility layer. So you just have to annotate things correctly and it'll tell you whether or not you need to uh, add a compatibility function. That, that's really cool. Um, people have joked recently um, because there's now a, um, a Windows subsystem for Linux, if there could be a Windows subsystem for BSD, does this work interact with that at all? Um, this doesn't really interact with that. Um, my understanding of WSL2 is that it's basically you know, Ubuntu in a container. Um, so if we had a little bit better container support, we could have a, <laughs> you know, Windows subsystem for FreeBSD probably. That would be cool though, because then you could run Linux in the FreeBSD subsystem for Linux, uh, for Windows <laughs> through our compatibility. Okay, uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Uh, I think, I mean, I, th I think that's probably the main things to hit on today. Um, I think, you know, people who are interested in Terry should keep watching out for new things. Uh, we're hoping to have a release uh, for Morello pretty soon that's got uh, full GUI support and uh, is usable as a desktop environment. So really uh, proving the idea that um, we can port software to this memory safe to see it, it does work. Uh, is, is there any way for people to get hold of Morello hardware and run tests? Is it going to be more available than it has been? Um, so I think it, in principle, the official answer is talk to your arm rep. Um, <laughs> um, so it is, it is in, in principle possible. I, my understanding is there are further chips available that haven't been allocated, although boards haven't been, aren't scheduled for production yet um, for, those, for those chips. Uh, also for people in the community, uh, we're hoping to be able to provide access to VMs uh, at Cambridge. We have close to 30 machines in Iraq. Wow. Uh, and we're, once Beehive lands and we're ready and we have that, we'll be able to provide VMs for people uh, to do some work. So uh, looking forward to uh, Andy Turner's uh, Beehive for <laughs> ARM64 landing in FreeBSD. Um, and then we can take his additional work and get that into CherryBSD support virtualized cherry. Okay, that, that's great. Thank you very much for coming on the show. So we hope you enjoyed this interview with Brooks Davis. Thanks again, Brooks, for allowing us to interview you and the insights you gave into your interesting work over the years and the various projects you've been involved with. And uh, yeah, why not grab some warm beverage here or maybe a little snack here before we start with our next interview because it's just as interesting. Uh, Olivier is just an amazing character and a very nice person to interview. And he was a bit nervous, as probably everyone would be in their first interview on BSD Now. But uh, I think the things he says are also interesting for uh, newcomers and seasoned uh, developers alike, or seasoned open source people even, uh, no matter whether they uh, contribute or something. So that's definitely interesting. So check out this interview that we have coming up right now. Hi, so we're back at EuroBSDCon 2022 um, and we're speaking into a laptop because Alan has absconded with the microphone. And we're happy to have Olivier Cochard-Labé with us. Thank you for agreeing to be on our show. And I think we had you a while ago, but maybe people forgot who you are. So can you give us a little bit of a background who you are and how did you get started with BSD and Unix in particular? Yeah, of course, sure. So, hi everyone. Um, then, how I start? Oh, I start, I discovered this um, FreeBSD, it should be 2005, something like that. 
it's very close to very tight i would say to funa's story so yeah it's one day i start to i was looking for nas at home then i try to hack my home firewall which was monowall based so the father of PFSense, Funas, and everything else embedded. So then I try to hack this funny Linux system to transform it into NAS. Then this is how I discovered this was not based on Linux, but it was something called FreeBSD. So this is how, so yes, just by accident, total accident. <laughs> uh, um, it was that, it was very interesting discovery. And yeah, that is. Okay, and you were involved in FreeNAS very early on? I created FreeNAS. So... Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah so I modify, I patch a monowall. So I, I try a lot of um, methods before. So I, I start with Linux BusyBox first, but I was not able to compile because I was, uh, yeah, I was smart enough to understand how to compile this stuff. So, but I found lots more easy to patch Monowall because Monowall have a great advantage. On the website of Monowall, there's a user guide and there was a developer user guide. On the author, I think it's Manuel Casper, he wrote exactly how it built from a FreeBSD, how Monowall was built. On, at this time, there is no framework or very complex stuff. We were talking about just copying file in the memory disk and then dumping this memory disk uh, on a USB device. So it was very, very easy for a total newbie like me to, to, do it, to do exactly the same. And this is how I created FreeNAS to share my DivX file at my home. And then this is how FreeNAS started. And I never, it was never the objective of FreeNAS to become the beast it is today. So yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did FreeNAS go from being something that was yours to being picked up by the community? What did that look like? Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I have no experience of development, of open source, of nothing when I start working on Funas. Uh, I, I think it took me one week just to modify Monowall and to replace the firewall set by the Samba uh, configuration set. It was very, very easy. But it was just for my own experience, my own internal usage. I just know that as an open source software, you have to give back to give back your code. So I just create a website to just push back the patches I on even the FreeNAS version, just just because it's so. It's, this is how it should work uh, on the open source world. Then I have to find a name. So FreeNAS was the very first stupid name I found, it. and I push it online and almost forget it. But very very soon I receive. Lots of um, questions about documentation, about uh, contribution. Um, so, but it was my first operating software, my first open source software. So I didn't know it was a success because, for me, I have no idea how operating uh, open source software works. So it seems normal for me that every that to receive so much of mail and <laughs> to receive so much of. But I have no idea it was a success really. Uh, um, uh, so for me it was normal, and so the load started from, yes, the freelance became a crazy, crazy uh, story because it took a lot of time, uh, but I received lots of contributions in the beginning. What, what was freelance like in the beginning? What were the services it offered? Uh, okay, uh, it's like a very, so it's, it's a 
very simple uh, PHP-based web UI, and you just are able to, if I remember well, to, to format your hard drive, so you boot from a USB key, if I remember well, it's an 8 megabyte or 16 megabytes in USB key, and because the purpose was to create a JVNUM write file using the four ID hard disk on your PC. Okay. And so the web UI allowed to, yes, to format the hard drive and then to create a Samba shell uh, on top of it. This was just the beginning of Rust. It was designed and built for home files sharing. But I think a few months after, I received a mail from, uh, I think it was a huge uh, Brazilian city. And they, uh, they asked me some questions because they had already some terabytes of video file because all their video cameras, the city was storing on Funas. And this is I start. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, let me explain. Uh, I have no idea we could have such high number of hard drives in the PC. And then I started receiving questions about how to integrate it into another company in, in uh, Microsoft uh, Active Directory. But I've never touched on Windows before, so I have to install a Windows to discover what is an Active Directory to try to uh, communicate with Funas about. So, and people told me about how, how to do backup. Of, uh, I remember the first question about snapshot. And I have no idea what a snapshot was, so I have to dig what what, what is asking to me. So it was it was fun, uh, but the community was great. So I tried to continue to just the, the evening and the weekend. But at a moment you have to yeah you have to say okay it's it's not my my job. So I tried to ask help to my company, but they didn't understand my question. And I said okay I think I have something successful, but I I cannot manage it almost alone. Uh, so, and I have a, a big change in my personal life. And, uh, then I, did, I cannot touch, I have lots of problems to have internet access for about two years. Uh, then I give, so the main developer working with me was a German guy, Volker Thiel, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's a guy who created uh, OpenMedia Vault now. Right. So the guy was the main developer of Rudia, so I give it the project, but uh, he have a, yeah, it was very difficult because Freelance was so successful, he has so much of users. Uh, having to manage such a project in your free time is very difficult. Uh, it, so, yeah, so at the end, uh, I asked Ed, we, we, we talked openly on the forum but how to, how to do, what to do with the future of Freelance. Um, then X system contacted me. And they, they said, okay, we saw you, you got a problem to develop it. Are you agreeing we can spend time helping you? And this I said, no, 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 you, you will not help me. I will give you the project and you will go because you are expert in, in us, in storage. I never touched a professional life in my life. This is not my job. <laughs> I just for fun. So you, you will be a lot smarter than me. So at a point I have to, yeah, to, to take the decision. Okay, it's too big for me now. Um, okay, I give my baby to them. And they like doing it. Yeah, but that's amazing. You can accidentally have a successful NAS yeah, on yeah. BSD. So for me, the story reminds me of two things: like don't worry, be crappy, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, fake it till you make it. Right? Yeah. This is definitely an amazing learning environment. Yeah. <laughs> what is a snapshot? Let's but that wasn't out. the end of the story, right? There's more after that. Ah, oh, so after yeah, so uh, so I, I've learned a lot of things with Freelance. Um, first, Freelance is a very embedded system with a great web UI. And the problem is, 
if you have a very experienced FreeBSD system administrator, you cannot reuse all your experience using FreeNAS because it's, uh, you have to follow what the web UI. Uh, so this was a little frustrating me. On the second thought was, okay, I hate UI. Uh, as, um, I, mean, I was a network engineer. Um, I cannot think about a router with a UI. Uh, stuff like, like PFSense are great for uh, end user or small company, but when you are a big company, you need to use a, a tooling to, to operate and to configure your your system. So I'm a fan, I'm a big fan of common line interface. So after FreeNAS, then I go back to my roots, so network, uh, network stuff. Then I create a DSD water project. And this is, but I was, uh, my objective was to keep uh, a system really, really close to FreeBSD because uh, my goal was, okay, if uh, someone knows already BSD, FreeBSD, he need to be aware to configure the, the, my, my new toolings. And he will be only uh, command line oriented. I don't want to have a web UI because we have problems with security and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a total, it's a different job. Uh, be able to, to create a very easy and beautiful interface. It's, it's not what I like. I'm, I'm not good at that. Um, so yeah, so I, I created BSD Watcher project, but just as a, a very fun, fun project because I like that. And, um, it was used by my employer at this moment too. So okay, which is, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I start working, but when you start working on uh, on this project, I have a little problem. Is okay. What about the performance of routing FreeBSD? So I try to look uh, on the, um, yeah, searching how to tune FreeBSD, for example, mm -hmm. and you find lots of uh, tuning guide when they give you magic number. Um, I don't like this concept because I want to be able to understand on how to find this, uh, how to be able to find this. Okay, I've got a problem. I've got the, my buffer size is full. Yeah, okay, but why it's full? And so I, I'm trying to, I start trying to understand all of this. And this is how uh, I start to build all my uh, internal network performance uh, bench. Uh, so I was reusing all the uh, unused material of my previous employee, uh, it was uh, the Telco Orange in France. They were uh, happy to give me lots of uh, unused servers, and I built a full um, network performance lab, and I tried to use uh, all the tooling, how to correctly do a benchmark, it's a mm -hmm. crazy, crazy complex solution. Yeah, yes. exactly. um, how, yeah, how to do that, so I have to learn yeah, how to do correct benchmark, how to measure, uh, how to measure the stuff, to present the result. Then I start working a lot more on helping the FreeBSD developer to, to bench their, their patches. And now, yeah, I'm playing a lot with, the, with this network stuff and doing network performance. Um, and after a moment, then I, uh, I have, a, there was a, a job uh, opening in, at Netflix. And I start working for Netflix almost uh, about five years ago, uh, four years ago. And I think it's, yes, it's because all my crazy stuff is you know, <laughs> yeah. project and stuff like that. You build a resume that way, right? Some yeah. work that you did and people now recognize you as the performance person. Yeah, performance so person. But yeah, one of my really, um, one of my ultimate goal is when there's a free BSD developer who, who create a patch because he, he wants to, to improve, my goal would be to have, for example, a, an interface where you can say, okay, here is a patch that improves, for example, I think the firewall performance with a number of states. And it will be, 
you should have a tools to say, okay, I would like to, to try, okay, how many millions states per second of new state per second? We say, I want this set up on this kind of hardware, ARM or AMD64 or stuff like that, and be able to self-service, you know, to generate automatically the bench for him, yeah. and for, him for the developers. And get this. That would be that would be a great system for a tutorial or like education. Oh, yes. If you could have a system where you say like, dump your firewall rules in here and we just stress it for you, it would be a really helpful service. That'd be really cool. I was thinking about this the other day when at Modular Room we're talking about their DDoS and I was like, that'd be great if we could just offer them like a hundred gigabit test service and we just run their firewall rules for them and we'll see what stays up. Mm. Yes, but it's a little complex because when you are playing, when you are talking about performance. It's, this means we cannot play with VM. Um, creating VM, stopping, destroying VM is very easy. Now, my, my problem for this project is we need to talk about physical hardware. So we need to have a framework that manage you know, all the booking reservation of this uh, group of hardware. Um, yes, starting them, stopping them. So it's a, so it's, it's a project I'm working with uh, the FreeBSD Foundation when it comes to CI. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> and is that the same that you're currently working on, or have your interests shifted a little bit? Uh, no, I, I like it. <laughs> it's still the same. Yeah, yeah. But I would say, oh, uh, I work a lot for Netflix because it's so exciting. On the one on the team is. It's yeah. great. It's a team of FreeBSD people. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, the ambience, the, 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 all the opportunity we have, the challenge we have to solve are great. Uh, so I try to yes to, to find free time to, to play. I, I, I still continue to do that to improve. On, on yeah, funny stuff. So we have some talk uh, during the EuroBSDCon, and I discover that company are using BSD RP in their very critical, serious business. So, and I was not aware that there is some customer. For me, it was very like an experimental project. Yes, BSD Router Project was almost an example of hey, how can you use Nano BSD as a framework? It's, in my idea, it was just almost an, yes, a working example. But yeah, I discovered that I need to take care a lot more about BSD Router Project because there's more people <laughs> that I was aware of. Okay, uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? Oh, it's great to at last uh, meet us together and <laughs> in the same place. It was yeah, I miss that a lot. Um, and yeah. it's so it's so yeah, great. Two years to of nothing. Oh, yeah. at least not nothing in person. Yeah, uh, yeah that was a, a major topic. Talking to people, that's like oh, it's great that we're in the same place again. Okay, uh, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks to Olivier Cochard-Labé for allowing us to interview him as well. And uh, I kind of like this interview because it really showed me similarities to my own uh, approaches or my very first, you know, dabblings in open source and the FreeBSD project in particular. And it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what kind of career path of sorts you can take uh, with a little bit of contributions here and there and you never know what comes out of it. And in Olivier's case, I'm fairly sure it's uh, was overall well received and he benefited a lot from that as well as the community. So thanks for that. And these are the two interviews that we have for you today. 
Remember, there will be another one from EuroBSDCon that we recorded also coming up in a future episode, so don't miss that. And uh, from us here at the BSD Now team, we wish you happy holidays with friends and family, hopefully. And yeah, hopefully we have provided you with good entertainment throughout this year. We definitely uh, received a lot of feedback this time and appreciated what every one of you wrote. We are definitely continuing in the new year as well. Remember, there will be another episode before this year is out, so <laughs> don't miss us too much yet. And I also want to thank my co-hosts, Tom and Alan, for you know doing this with me for many years now. And also our producer, JT, for being such a supportive person, doing all the hard work behind the scenes, you know, creating the show notes and cutting our crazy recordings back together and making a nice episode, fixing my audio if it's not too uh, good here. But now that's out of the way. And we also want to thank, of course, our sponsor, Tarsnap. And because they've supported us for a number of years now, since we're an independent podcast, that is all uh, good to know that there's some financial support in this kind of thing. So in case something breaks here, my microphone, for example, we have ways to continue the show. And biggest thanks also goes out to you, the audience, because, hey, if no one would listen to this podcast, this would be a very boring show between us hosts, right? Because we kind of know what's in the episode each time. But um, knowing that there's people out there listening to us, wherever that might be, is good to know. And the feedback, again, that we receive is uh, very nice to read always and it's very positive i can't think of anything bad that once came through the line or someone has filtered this out somehow uh jt did you do that no um i think this also shows that people like the format and the uh, shows that we do uh, over the years were kind of well received and it's providing some value like the, the topics that we cover the how to's we do or the feedback and questions section that's also good for the community to get a bit involved in getting their questions answered. So thanks everyone for supporting us and till next time. 